Welcome back to Two Keto Dudes. This is Carl Franklin from Connecticut in the United States. And in February 2016, I put myself on a ketogenic diet to take control of my metabolism. In just two and a half months, I managed to reverse all my markers of type 2 diabetes with diet alone. As of now, I'm 80 pounds lighter with no signs of diabetes or heart disease. Hi, I'm Richard Morris in Canberra, Australia, and I've been on a ketogenic diet for three years. When I started, I was very sick with complications from type 2 diabetes. And within six months of starting a ketogenic diet, all of my biomarkers of disease had disappeared. I've also lost about 80 pounds, and I've completely turned my health around. And this show is a document of my progress through ketosis and Richard's experience thriving for years in ketosis. Oh, yeah. And hopefully that might help a few people who are curious about this kind of dietary hacking. Yeah, we're not doctors. We don't want to give anyone any medical advice, but we are keen to share our own experiences. We are actually both software developers, so we're not afraid of a little technical detail, are we, Carl? Nah. We've done some research into our own deranged metabolisms and the science behind them. We hope to share some of that research, and where possible, we intend to put links in the show notes to cite research supporting any claims that we make. And you'll probably work out pretty quickly that we're both foodies. We love to cook and we love to eat. (laughs) Yep. In every episode, we both share a keto recipe that cannot be ignored. Nope, it cannot. (laughs) So, Richard, let's start podcast number 69, Show Me the Science. Show me the science. Science! Well, uh, let's talk about uh, corrections or apologies. I have one, a uh, little bit of errata from last week. It's pronounced poke, not poke. Poke? <laughs> tuna poke. <laughs> I said tuna poke. That was, your, that was your recipe from last week, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, no excuses. I didn't do my homework, and I took a waiter's bad pronunciation as definitive. But guess what? It was delicious. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, it's a Hawaiian word, poke. So, mm. sorry about that. Didn't awesome. mean to offend. Just an ignorant American here learning how to pronounce things. Yeah. Also, remember that road trip we spoke about last week? Well, we're scrapping that. Yeah, it's unfortunate. We we didn't have the uh, right-out-of-the-gate response we were looking for, and quite frankly, we reevaluated you know, just how many people we could possibly reach. And in terms of the money spent per person, even with good attendance, it w- really wasn't worth it all that much. And we could basically take that money and use it to reach far more people in more effective ways. Yeah. You'll probably find that we're going to try a lot of things like Keto Fest. Uh, and our goal is to try and fail early. So yeah. to, to try something, do a Kickstarter. If the Kickstarter hadn't worked, we would have known about it very early on and we could we could try something else. And so um, you're probably going to find, see that we're going to try a a whole bunch of things. We're working on a book. We're working on a whole bunch of very interesting ways to, to, to get the message out to people that a ketogenic diet can reverse diabetes. Right. And only one of those is this podcast. We're going to try some other media as well. Yeah, we're going to do some videos, I think. Right. Well, let's revisit what a ketogenic diet is. A ketogenic diet is any diet that puts you in a state of nutritional ketosis where you're burning yep. body fat for fuel instead of sugar. And essentially, we do that. And one of the ways that you can do it is by limiting carbohydrates to less than 20 per day, mostly from green leafy vegetables, maybe a few dairy products, some nuts, things like that. And moderate protein, you want to eat one to one and a half grams of protein for every one kilogram of lean body mass that you have. 
And what's your lean body mass? Well, that's what you would weigh if you had no body fat. Right. It's been a while since that's been the case. <laughs> yeah, right. And most people, it's 60 to 120 grams of protein a day, depending on how big you are. And the rest of our energy we get from fat. Fat. <laughs> <laughs> Either the fat that's on our plate or the fat from that Krispy Kreme we ate a decade ago. And we can't shut up about that Krispy Kreme. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's true. So, Richard, how was your week, man? Uh, it was pretty good, actually. Um, I just did a 63K bike ride. Awesome. Um, I, I had a... I didn't do one last week because my knee was getting a bit sore, but just going off and not doing a long ride for a week, uh, I felt great. So um, that enabled me to get back into it, which is good. And then we've just been, been spending a lot of time getting Keto Fest going. So, right. you know, working on, on plans for that exactly. um, and plans for other things that we're doing. So, um, no, I've had a good week. I, I happen to know – that you've had like four hours of sleep and your voice is breaking. So, <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> so uh, I'm I'm assuming that you had a pretty good week. I had a good week, a particularly good night last night. Um, the the band played down at Daddy Jackson New London last night, and it was just nice. I don't know what it was. It was magic. The sound was perfect. Like the levels were great. Our headphone yeah. monitor mixes were perfect. The voice, my voice was in good shape. Not so much today, but uh, <laughs> it was in good shape. <laughs> but I'll tell you what. Um, in terms of ketogenics, last week I had the best fasting experience I've ever, ever had. I Do fasted tell. for five days. Okay. That's, that's good. Yeah, and it's the longest fast I ever did, and it was just mm. black coffee, sea salt, and water. I basically right. took a, a another nod from Megan Ramos. She's like my personal guru now when it comes to fasting. <laughs> I love Megan. And she basically said when she fasts, Every two hours or so, she takes about a quarter teaspoon of sea salt and puts it right on her tongue or under the tongue and allows it to ah. absorb directly and quickly into the system. Mm. And, and it's better than diluting it in water that you actually get this jolt of salt. And if you can take yeah. it, if you can take the burn or whatever you want to call it, the salt <laughs> burn, and chase it down with some water after, you know, after yeah. a minute or two. Wash the salty taste away, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I took that advice, and man, was that good advice. I had no yeah. cramps. I had no – I mean, I had hunger, but that quelled it. I mean, I felt like I had just eaten a meal yeah. after well, doing the blood that. blood vessels are very close to the surface in the mouth, and, yeah. and you get glucose. If you eat a glucose meal, you, your, your blood supply is getting the initial hit of that glucose almost instantly before. Yeah, before it even leaves your mouth. So mm. it makes a lot of sense. You know, salt right. uh, would work in the same way because it's a small molecule. It'll pass, it'll diffuse straight across into the blood vessels. And so yeah. it's probably a very quick way to get salt into your, into your blood vessels. So anyway, that was my week. I had a great fasting week and it ended with uh, mm. a, a meal at Daddy Jack's. And uh, then I played after that and just had such a great time. Yeah. Daddy Jack's is actually going to be one of the restaurants uh, at, Keto Fest, right? Yeah. And speaking of that, I saw a salad mm. on the bar when I got there to set up. And it was for the okay. bartender, Corey, who is actually mm -hmm. a, you know, you know, a carb smart uh, weightlifter, bodybuilder guy. And okay. he totally gets the whole insulin thing. And uh, yeah. I said, what was that salad? And he said, oh, well, that was kind of a thing that me and Steve, the pizza cook, kind of dreamed mm -hmm. up. It was a... A salad that had 
uh, any pasto on it. So cold cuts wrapped up with provolone cheese, but it also had um, a little bit of chicken, a little bit of bacon, a little bit of uh, some some walnuts, uh, some blue cheese, and then this emulsified balsamic vinaigrette over it. That was like oh, yeah. a balsamic aioli. <laughs> That's very unsalad like. <laughs> yeah. So I said, "Hey, would you put this on the menu for Keto Fest and call it a keto salad?" And he says, "Absolutely." That would be awesome. Yeah. So, well, hopefully they keep it on the menu. Well, yeah. And I said, uh, "Can I also have an extra thing of dressing?" So when you serve this, put the dressing on and then put another one on the side because you know mm-hmm. that's where your fat is. Yeah. yeah. Nice. That's it. That's awesome. Yeah. So now that we know we had good weeks, I guess that brings us to a little segment we call Mel. I just walk eat. Okay, for moment. <laughs> okay. I'll go first. This one is uh, a message that was left on the ketogenic forums in the newbies mm-hmm. section. And if you don't know about the forums, just go to forum.2keto.com and join up. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is from Mitchell. And he said, I started keto this past Monday on day five. And it's going great, but my legs feel like rubber. I haven't hit the I can run through the wall energy level yet, but it's still better than pre-keto. Some body mm. aches, nothing really bad. I eat mostly fat, staying below 20 grams of carbs and around 80 to 100 grams of protein. I take a multivitamin and use light salt. I currently weigh 295, eight pounds down so far. Any ideas on getting my legs straightened out, or am I just going to have to wait for keto adaption to run its course? And P.S., I love the forum, and thanks, you guys, all that blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So, cool. yeah, I think a lot of people uh, gave him pretty good advice. Um Make sure you're getting plenty of electrolytes, mostly salt, and uh, try. A lot of people recommended pink Himalayan salt because it has some mm. extra minerals in it, and it also could be magnesium, which is classic uh, deficiency that we all have, most of us have, and, and it's really good at giving you leg cramps when you have a deficiency. Yeah, well, we our produce in Australia is very low in magnesium. Our our soils are very low minerals anyway but um yeah we we uh, generally have produce that's lower than mag in magnesium than uh, even you guys in the states have so huh. yeah i supplement with magnesium i wish i didn't have to and yeah. if i was able to grow more food and manufacture the soil that i want to grow my food in yeah. it would be i'd add be adding magnesium to it and i'd be making sure that i had high mag soil but right. um yeah it's it's uh, yeah. i have to supplement supplement it and it's very easy to do and sure. sometimes like after a ride i might soak my feet in epsom salts now epsom salts is a magnesium salt that's a great way to get magnesium without upsetting your stomach which it can happen yeah. Well, go straight across the skin, so it's transdermal, yeah. so it's, it's very easy to do, yeah. I also found a water on the market that has electrolytes in it, and there's a bunch of them now, you know, smart water or whatever, but yeah. Fuji water, I was surprised okay. to find had some magnesium in it. Interesting. Which I thought was good. I mean, it's not enough mm. to give you a laxative effect. It wouldn't be a popular product if it, <laughs> yeah. if it gave everybody laxative effect. Right. <laughs> right, but a little magnesium citrate. Mixed up in mm. your water is a is a good thing to do. 
Yeah, I do that when I'm writing. I, I'll, I'll create a, a uh, water bottle with uh, uh, two uh, spoons of magnesium citrate, two yeah. of potassium citrate, and a uh, um, little bit of sa- uh, sodium chloride, regular salt, and yeah. uh, a little squirt of uh, sugar-free flavor. And yeah. that, that's basically what I what I ride with. And uh, I generally don't come back with an empty bottle. I probably only have a couple of sips. And I, whenever I feel dehydrated, I'm starting mm. to get a dry mouth, I'll, I'll have a swig. And uh, cool. that just keeps me going, yeah. All right. Well, that's my mail. What do you got, Richard? So I've actually got a mail item from our ketogenic forums as well. And this one is from uh, Fran, who says, uh, this question is protein clarification. And Fran says, I need some clarification. I have a local Facebook keto group and one member keeps insisting that protein is his most important macro and that he eats more protein than he does of fat, which is fine for him, but he keeps saying that if people don't get enough protein, then the body will take it from the muscles. I've heard this before, but my understanding is that it only happens if the body is starving. Also, this way of thinking doesn't make sense to me because if it were true, then people couldn't do extended fasting without losing lean body mass. And as we know, people don't lose lean body mass from extended fasting. Can somebody please clarify this protein issue for me uh, so that I can report accurate information back to my group? I don't want to argue with the guy, but I feel like he's giving out incomplete, inaccurate information. Well, my observations are um, protein gets recycled, and that's what autophagy is. And when you fast, if you've got extra skin and you have extra dead protein that needs to be recycled, it'll be recycled. And so that is a good thing when you're overweight and you have excess skin and you have excess body fat. When you're fit and lean and pumping iron, you probably don't have a lot of that to be recycled and excavated as much as I do. And therefore, maybe you do need more protein. I don't know. Is that a a ridiculous assumption, Richard? I'm not sure that Jason Fung is right about skin being recycled like that. And I've mentioned it before. It could be true. We don't. I don't know if it's true. It could. It could be true. I. Uh, I, I guess I would respond to Fran by saying that there are a lot of myths about protein, mm. and uh, one of the obvious ones is that you need to eat muscles to build muscles. It's mm. kind of a little, little bit like you. You got to eat fat to get fat, or mm. you've got to eat greens to turn green. <laughs> um, there are definitely groups on Facebook uh, who push high protein. Right. Um, I guess we should look at protein. We use protein for four purposes. We break it into amino acids and we use those to maintain our existing protein structures. Right. And we use them to make additional protein structures. So if you're building muscle, you're going to – use some of the excess amino acids to build that extra muscle. So you're going to need more protein if you're building muscle. Yeah. We also strip nitrogen, sulfur, uh, selenium, uh, other non-carbohydrate elements mm. off the protein structures, uh, and we use that to make glucose if yep. we need to make glucose. And finally, we waste the excess for fuel. So okay. we burn it in our furnaces. And the reality is that proteins are massive complex molecules that become easily misfolded and damaged over time. Yeah. So we evolved to replace old protein structures with new ones on an ongoing basis. Right. And this continual protein recycling, basically it sets the largest minimum requirement for new sources of amino acid building blocks. And that sets the minimum amount that you must have every day. Yeah. So you've got to have some protein every day to be able to keep this going. For people who fast, uh, arguably, 
they're going to be tearing down a lot of structures and they may be building up fewer structures because if they've got body fat, that body fat lives in a extracellular matrix of collagen, which is a protein. So as you draw down your body fat, you need less of that extracellular matrix. And so it's quite possible that people who fast, as I say, yeah. uh, have lower requirements for this protein for right. turnover. Right. And But that's a hypothesis. I'm, I, I'd like to see somebody test that. Yeah, yeah. The minimum amount of daily protein that you need was determined by Rand et al. in 2003. This was a meta-analysis of nitrogen balance studies for the purposes of estimating protein requirements in healthy adults. And this was actually the study behind the Australian nutrient reference values. Um, And they determined that people are able to remain in nitrogen balance, that is, people who are eating the Goldilocks amount of protein so they neither have too much or too little, they have just the right amount, people are able to be in that Goldilocks range between 0.3 grams per kilogram of lean body mass and 1.0 grams per kilogram of lean body mass. That's a very broad range of of human variability. Um, So I think it's interesting to try a thought experiment. What is the maximum amount of protein that an imaginary man with 80 kilograms of lean body mass would need? Now, 80 kilograms of lean body mass, that's actually my lean body mass. For that man, if he was at the very top of that uh, range from Rand et al., he would need 80 grams. That is the most that he needs to account for protein turnover. Um, th- those two outliers on the very far right of that uh, chart, and we'll, we'll link this in the in okay. the notes. The very very right hand end of the chart is two outliers that are sitting on 1.0 grams per kilogram of lean body mass. Most of the people are sitting in the range of between uh, 0.4 and 0.8, and there's even one person who is able to maintain lean body mass at 0.3 grams per kilogram of lean body mass. Wow. So that's some mutant down there who, yeah, right. who uh, is able to, to, to do this. So, um, of course, if you're building muscle, you're building new muscle, you'll need some more, um, more protein because you make muscles out of protein. If you are working out as a full-time job and building an impressive rig to do the next Wolverine movie, for example, (laughs) let's say you want to put on 12 kilograms of muscle over a six-month period, then that will take two kilograms of raw amino acids uh, because uh, protein is like one-sixth of the the mass of uh, of a human muscle. Mm. Um, You're going to need two... Two kilograms of raw amino acids over 150 days, six months. So that would be a total of 13 grams of extra amino acids per day. Mm. So if we uh, look at our imaginary guy going from he starts out at 80 kilograms of lean body mass and he wants to to really pump up to get to 92 kilograms, he would need roughly 80 grams for the protein turnover plus 13 grams for building new muscle. So he'd need 93 grams of protein that day. Okay, it's not a lot. No, it's not a lot. If you don't eat around 150 grams of carbs a day, and most of us are not in that category, then you'll also need some dietary protein to be turned into glucose to keep your brain alive. Right. Um, Let's say you're eating zero carbs to take this argument to its absolute extreme so that we can work out what the minimum uh, uh, amount that that a person has to have. Okay. There's science showing exactly how much protein you will need, and this was done by George Carl in his 1970 Starvation in Man study. Right. He studied the fuel flows using direct catheterization in a subject that was eating nothing. And uh, 
he was really subsisting on body fat and body protein. And in the first 24 hours, he used 75 grams a day of muscle protein to turn into glucose. Hmm. But by the time this guy was fat adapted five or six weeks down the road, he was only using 20 grams a day. And hmm. that's important for those of us in ketosis because that is our starting point. Yeah. We've already done the five to six week apprenticeship. Right. We are now fat adapted. Yeah. We're only using 20 grams a day of protein to make glucose to keep our brain alive. Got it. Interesting thing about this is that protein is not the only substrate for making glucose. We also make glucose from the 10% of a triglyceride that is not lipid. Mm. That's actually the glycerol um, backbone of a triglyceride. So when we burn fat, we're releasing glycerol and we can use that to make glucose as well. So how much fat that we have and how many calories we're burning will determine how much – of that uh, glycerol can be used for for glucose and therefore how much protein we need. So if this imaginary guy has more body fat uh, and he burns more calories, he'll use fewer than 20 grams per day. Yeah. And if he has less fat, uh, then he's in a world of hurt and the least of his problems will be that he has to burn more protein. Right. Okay. So this hypothetical dude would need roughly eight grams of protein for protein turnover. Mm -hmm. He would need roughly 13 grams for hypertrophy, which is his weight lifting and Mm -hmm. uh, building new muscles. And then he's going to need 20 grams for gluconeogenesis. So that's 113 grams per day. So all the other protein that he eats would be wasted for fuel as empty calories. And every one of those will displace a gram of fat uh, and that will result in fewer ketones for the brain, which could result in the brain needing more glucose, which would use more protein. So it's a slippery slope that you're going to get onto Got when it. you start talking about higher protein diets. Eventually, when you go down that road of eating more protein uh, that's going to be wasted for energy, you need to eat increasingly more protein. Mm. And at some point, you're going to run into the human limit for protein, which according to Nolly et al., uh, this is a study, protein poisoning and coastal subsistence. Right. Uh, they describe the limits of human protein metabolism as the limit of how much oxygen a human liver can take in. Ah. And they, sa- they say that the most energy human beings can safely derive from protein sources over an extended period lies in the region of 20 to 50% of the daily energy needs. Well, there you go. So let's say you're on two kilocalories a day. That would be a limit of about 20, 250 grams of protein. If you have any more than that, you're going to be moving into rabbit starvation territory. Yeah. Okay. Just for the sake of completeness, I put my own figures into the uh, burn fat, not sugar uh, calculator, mm-hmm. and it told me that I needed to eat 264 grams a day of protein. Wow. Um, yeah. yeah wow. No. <laughs> I'm not going to do that because that is over um, uh, 250 grams of protein. And if I'm on a 2,000 kilocalorie day, uh, which I am, then uh, then that limit would put me into the rabbit starvation mm. area. Um, and just in case anyone is uh, concerned that all of the above is theoretical, which it is, I actually I have actual case evidence of minimal protein needs for myself. Uh, for two months before the low-carb Breckenridge Conference, I ate the Aussie minimum daily intake of protein, which uh, for a 52-year-old man is about 0.84 grams per kilogram of lean body mass. So for me, that was uh, at 80 kilograms of uh, lean body mass. That's uh, 67 grams of protein a day. Sounds like a very low amount, but I bet if you were to take that to one of these groups that uh, likes a lot of protein and ask them what would happen to a guy with 80 kilograms mm. who ate 
67 grams of protein, uh, most of them would say, oh, he's going to lose lean muscle mass and he's going to have skinny fat. Um, but I actually had a DEXA scan before and after the trial, and I went from 80.38 kilograms to 80.342 kilograms. So that's well within the margin of error of the measurement. Um, and, you know, I had also had a knee injury at the time, so I'd reduced my uh, cycling from 150K a week to under 20K a week. So yeah. um, that probably had more influence over how much lean mass I had than, uh, than the protein that I had. So so for me, the evidence shows that 67 grams of protein is adequate for me. Uh, and personally, I have no problem with anyone who says that they have personally need more or people who say that they want more. But I would advise anyone getting close to 50% of calories from protein um, to reach that level gradually to build up their liver enzymes and be very careful of ammonia intoxication and other symptoms of rabbit starvation. Okay, very good. Yeah, I've got one. It's from Facebook. It's actually from the Lower Insulin Group, which is uh, run by Gabo Adosi. And this message was from Dan, who says, Last July, I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes after an A1C of 11.9. Wow. Wow, <laughs> that Mine was 11.2, so, uh, so I was exactly where he was. He says, um, since then, I've dropped it to 4.9 without medications, uh, but my... HbA1c today was 5.2. What is the optimal A1c? I know Dr. Bernstein suggests going on meds for a 5.2 uh, to get it lower, uh, but many experts say different. Any thoughts? And my comment to him was that um, that uh, firstly I had to congratulate him. A great achievement. Getting from 11.9 yep. down to, to, to 4.8 or 5.2 is awesome work. Um, I said to him, I'm sure you know that when you don't eat carbs, you make them on demand and when your blood glucose goes too low. Mm. Uh, but your liver makes the decision what level of glucose it will defend. So it's really the liver is determining what that low level is. Um, the HbA1c doesn't really measure the glucose level that your liver is defending. What it measures is how much glucose is stuck to red blood cells during their lives. Right. Um, Here's the thing, though. Red blood cells can live between 90 to 120 days, depending on how quickly your spleen can harvest the ones that reach their use-by date. Ah. And we all have different red blood cell lifespans. Uh, the longer yours live, the more chance they have had to run into glucose. So if you have longer-lived red blood cells, you will have a higher HbA1c for exactly the same level of glucose. Um, so mine, wow. Nadir, the, the lowest point that mine got to is 5.2. Mm. Uh, and mine came from 11.2, so I had a, you know, a six percentage point drop. Um, and it's just started to rise a little bit to 5.3 after about three years on keto. Mm. And that could be a measurement error. Uh, it could be that I've got, uh, more glucose in circulation, but my spot blood checks and my postprandial blood checks actually show that my glucose control is getting even better. So I don't think it's that. Um, but the other thing that it could be is, um, it could be that, uh, it could be the case that three years on a ketogenic diet has incrementally improved the lifespan of my red blood cells oh, because. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, they're cleared out when their membranes become damaged. So, um, with less inflammation, it's quite possible my red blood cells live longer. And that's why I have a slightly higher HbA1c. So wow. anyway, I said to Dan, you know, your 5.2 could be exactly the same measurement as somebody else's 4.8. And the only difference is that your red blood cells have been in circulation longer. So, Well, you still um, prick your finger and measure your glucose. What do you get a sense that it usually is around? 
Yeah, well, my personal number is uh, mine. Mine is slightly lower than it used to used to be, and yet my HbA1c has just gone up a little bit. So, well, that's, you know, there you go. That, that could be the red blood cells. Yeah, I don't know if there's any science behind that um, hypothesis, but uh, right. it certainly is worth looking into. Sure is. Yeah, very cool, Richard. All right. Well, do you guys remember us talking about the Two Keto Dudes fan club? Do you remember, mm, we Richard? Have been talking about it. Yeah, I do. <laughs> Right. And every week we say we're not ready to draw a winner yet. That's right. We're going to do that next week. And now's so, the time we're going to draw our first winner. Wow. So we're actually going to do it this time. We are. We're doing it right now. So yeah. what this is, is we mentioned on the show that we have a fan club. We want you to answer a few questions that we can use to get a profile of who's listening to us. And therefore, right. hopefully... Uh, advertisers will see who you are and, you know, will, you know. Hopefully we'll be attractive to advertise on based on the information that you give. Exactly. So the first winner from the fan club of a coveted Two Keto Dudes coffee mug is Nick Donahue. Nice. Congratulations, Nick. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, congratulations, Nick. Absolutely. So we're going to do this every week. Every week we do a podcast, we're going to draw a name out of the hat. Yep. So anybody who has signed up for the Keto Dudes fan club uh, will go into the draw. That's it. Simple and we'll as that. And send out some swag. <laughs> nice. Simple as that, yes. <laughs> All right, Richard, this is the Show Me the Science show, and here's how this show came about. It's been a yeah. while since we've talked about science on this show, and, you know, as can yeah. happen – we just sort of rest on our laurels and say, well, we talked about that. Go listen to these shows. But there's so many shows, so many links. We thought it would be a good time to put them all together under one roof. Yeah. So the goal of this episode is to educate people who don't understand the science behind the ketogenic diet. Okay. Let's start with sugar and carbohydrates. Yeah. Just because it's not sweet doesn't mean it's low carb. That's right. I'll give you a perfect example, and this is an example of science not as a research paper in a peer-reviewed journal. This is science actually in your face on television during a debate. Mm. Now, this was a debate uh, between uh, Dr. Bernstein. This was in 2006 between Dr. Bernstein and Hope Warshaw. Now, who's Dr. Bernstein? He's the guy that cures type 1 diabetics. Oh, okay. He wrote, he wrote The Diabetes Solution. He has a large group, the type 1 grit group on Facebook is following his um, Great. Uh, method. And basically his premise is if you lower carbohydrates, you can lower the amount of insulin you have to give to type 1 diabetics. Mm. And if you lower the amount of insulin, the law of small numbers means that you're more likely to be more accurate. And so you're able to control somebody's type 1 diabetes and keep their blood sugar in a normal blood sugar range by just having them not eat uh, sugar or starch. A perfect example of this is our friend Ian Kelly. Remember him? Right. Yeah, yeah. that's right. I talked to him recently. He's taking an eighth of the insulin that, he's, that, he, that he used to because he's that's eating awesome. ketogenic. That is outstanding. I'm yeah. looking forward to uh, seeing him at KetoFest. Absolutely. Because he's in New London. Yeah. So let me get back to this video. The video is actually on a a, a TV program, and mm-hmm. they wanted to have two competing ideas. All right, so we know who Dr. Bernstein is. Who's Hope Warshaw? So she's a diabetes educator. Uh, okay. She was actually on the board of directors of the American Association of Diabetes Educators okay. and was its president in 2016. 
All right. So this is a little debate. It's very quick. It's only a few minutes. Let's just listen to what they had to say. So we want to find out what your viewpoint is of the nutritional needs of a person with diabetes. Okay. I want to make three quick points. Mm-hmm. Number one, the research shows that low-carb diets don't work. People can't stay on them long-term, and they're simply not a healthy way of eating. Number two, people with diabetes deserve to eat healthy and enjoy food. Number three is the carb issue today is not a quantity issue. It is a quality of carbohydrate Mm. issue. What we're eating too much of is added sugars, regular soda, fruit drink, and sweets. So what Americans need to do, I believe, Mm -hmm. is that they need to move those calories into healthier carbs. And that's what we have here, the fruits, the vegetables. Well, this is very different from your point of view, Dr. Bernstein. What do you think about this? Well, first of all, to say that low carb is untested is false. Humanity evolved eating flesh. That's why we have canine teeth. Our ancestors had managed to get a little bit of leafy vegetables here and there, but not 40% of their diet. A diabetic needs to have normal blood sugars or they get the complications of diabetes. Mm -hmm. You don't have to overwhelm yourself with carbohydrate and send your blood sugars sky high. Here's a whole grain bread, for example, which I'm just going to do a little demonstration and show how you instantly convert this to glucose. Uh-oh. This stuff turns from pink to blue in the presence of glucose. And look what's happened instantly. Yeah. I've made instant glucose just by chewing the bread. If I do it with the corn, if I do it with an apple, the same thing is going to happen. All right. So there you heard her just say we want to shift from sugary carbohydrates to quote-unquote quality carbohydrates. So what she's saying is... Uh, move from the sweet carbohydrates to the non-sweet ones. And she she assumes that whole grains and everything are healthier. Right. Of course, what Bernstein does is he says, here, hold my beer. <laughs> <laughs> and he basically opens up a slice of bread, chews on it, puts a little bit of saliva on the bread, and then gets a glucose testing strip called a diastix, which mm. actually is a, an basically it's a test for, for glucose. It yeah. turns blue when there's glucose. And he shows that the saliva, the amylase in his saliva has immediately turned that starch straight into sugar. Right. So he's basically just showed her right in front of her. Right. And there you go, showing the science. So that's a great way to open this discussion talking about sugar. Most people don't realize how much sugar is in things that aren't sweet. Right. So let's talk about foods in terms of teaspoons of sugar. Yes, this is what Damon Gamow did in that sugar film. Yeah. So essentially, you can think of every four grams of carbohydrates on a food is equal to one teaspoon of sugar. It's a gross simplification, but that's a, it's a really good starting point for understanding how much sugar is in things. Yeah, it's a great like-for-like comparison between two products. If you go and read their nutritional information, and one is 30 grams of uh, of carbohydrate and the other is 24 grams of carbohydrate, you know that one is going to be, what, six, six teaspoons and yeah. the other is five teaspoons of sugar. Right. So let's take a few foods here. Sure. Let's talk about whole wheat bread. Right. That's healthy, isn't it? It's very healthy. <laughs> Vermont bread, soft whole wheat. 
on Amazon.com. Mm-hmm. One slice has 14 grams okay. of carbs. That's three and a half teaspoons of sugar per slice of wow. bread. And you don't wow. think about it because bread isn't sweet. Right. But as Dr. Bernstein it's... showed, it turns right to glucose. Yeah. And a baked potato with no butter or sour cream or anything else, just the potato, 36 grams. That's nine teaspoons of sugar. How many times have you thought about putting sugar on your baked potato? No, no, right. no. I wouldn't do that because that's sugar. Sugar's yeah, that's bad. Unhealthy. And I wouldn't put <laughs> sure. fat or butter on it either, right? Because that's bad. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> this is just how backwards we are, kids. So yeah. one ounce of fat-free potato chips, about 23 grams of carbs, which is almost six teaspoons of sugar in one ounce of fat-free potato chips. I know. <laughs> healthy, fat-free potato chips. So one cup, that's about 28 grams of cornflakes, which you'd think is healthy, 24 grams, that's six teaspoons of sugar, and that's before you've even put the milk or sugar on it. Now let's put some milk on it. One cup of sure. 2% low-fat milk is 12 grams of carbs or three teaspoons of sugar. So cornflakes wow. and milk, nine teaspoons of sugar before you've even sweetened it. <laughs> Incredible. But most people don't eat cornflakes because, you know, that's kid nah. food, right? I'm healthy. Yeah. I'm organic. I'm hippie crunchy. I want to eat what's good for me. So I'm going to have a half a cup of muesli. Right. Yeah. 32 grams of carbs. Wow. And I'll, I'll actually link in on Amazon.com a product called Seven Sundays Muesli Blueberry Buckwheat. Wow. Well, that's just got all of, all of the superfood groups, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Buckwheat and blueberries. <laughs> right. Eight teaspoons of sugar and a half a cup. Now let's add to that a cup of Organic Valley fat-free skim milk, also linked on Amazon here, 12 grams or three teaspoons of sugar. So That's the same amount of sugar in uh, 2% low-fat milk. Yeah, exactly. So if I'm going to have muesli with skim milk, that's 11 grams total. Crazy. Incredible. Yep. Well, you think normally that, that things that have a lot of uh, sugar in them, like fruit, for example, or an, yeah. an orange uh, is about 12 grams. And you think, okay, an orange has had some sugar in it, right. but that's three teaspoons of sugar in an orange. Right. And if you juice that orange and get a cup of orange juice, 26 grams right. or six and a half teaspoons of sugar. Yeah, that's multi- because it's multiple oranges to make a, 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 a cup of orange juice, right? Right, yeah. Mm. So here's the big one. One cup of all-purpose flour. Right. It's in everything. 95 grams or 23 Mm -hmm. teaspoons of sugar. Wow. Wow. It's incredible, really. Yeah. You don't think of it. how many times do you put a cup? No. How many times do you put a cup of flour in in a pizza base or a cake or, you know, something? Feed it to your kids. Pancakes, waffles. Give them 23 teaspoons of sugar. Yeah, Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah, it is incredible. All right, that's sugar in a nutshell. So it's hidden in places where you don't think it is. It's not just the sugar that's on the label, but the carbohydrate level that you really have to worry about because you're eating sugar. Well, Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So one of the studies that I want to talk about, in fact, it's actually a meta-analysis of studies, uh, and it's from the uh, PHC UK, which stands for the Public Health Collaboration in the United Kingdom. Yeah. It's actually run by a guy named Sam Feltham, who we met at Breckenridge. Yep. And what he's done is he has collected together a series of randomized controlled trials, some 57 of them. Yeah. And uh, these trials compare uh, the results of a low-carb diet with a low-fat diet 
And the goal is which ones cause the most weight loss or which ones cause significant amount of weight loss. And when you say low carb, he's using 130 grams or less as low carbohydrate, which is pretty high yeah. actually. It is pretty high, but it's necessary to do that because if you ask uh, dietitians to do the same kind of thing, they're very wishy-washy on what is and is not a low-carb diet. So he has basically mm. said it has to be a low-fat diet has to be less than 35% of uh, fat total calories, and a low-carb diet has got to be less than 130 grams of carbohydrates per day. Okay. And he's collected 57 of these randomized controlled trials. Okay. So in theory, they should be able to provide us some information. Yeah. Well, two of those randomized controlled trials showed that, uh, sig- that, that there was no significant difference between a low-carb and a low-fat diet. Okay. And 48 of the 57 trials show that a low-carb diet produces a better weight loss than a low-fat diet. Okay. And seven show that a low-fat diet is better than a low-carb diet. So this explains why the dietitians are able to say there is evidence that says that a low-fat diet is better than a low-carb diet because there are studies that actually show that. Mm. But when you drill into the actual significance of the results, of the 48 studies that show that a low-carb diet is better than a low-fat diet, 29 of them are significant differences. So there is a significant difference in the weight loss for a low-carb diet than there is for a low-fat diet. Got it. When you drill into the seven that show that a low-fat diet produces more weight loss than a low-carb diet, the number that are actually significant is zero. Oh. So that's 29 to zero. Okay. Slam dunk. Slam dunk, you would think. But then the dietitians say, well, we've got seven studies that show that um, and we have, and and when you try and bring up the other forty eight studies, they go stick their thumbs in their ears and go la la la. I can't hear you. <laughs> All right, selective hearing. Yeah, well, that's a good place to start. Um, mm. I've got a few studies here, and the first one I want to bring up is a study of both animal and human subjects following a ketogenic diet for more than six years with nothing but good results. Wow, and the reason six years. I wanted to bring this up is because this is a common question people have, you know, well, it's great that you can lose weight for, you know, six months or whatever, lose 60 pounds. And, mm-hmm. But how long have you kept it off, you know? And right. not only that, but is a low-carb diet safe in the long term, mm. right? Yeah, right. So a quote from this abstract says, mm-hmm. the ketogenic diet or the low-carb diet appears to maintain its efficacy in humans when provided continuously for several years. Interestingly, benefits may seem long-term even when the diet is discontinued after only a few months of use, suggesting neuroprotective effects. Interesting. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Well, it's nice to actually have a long-term study. That's always been the problem, as you say. Yeah. Um, But... You know, we've been uh, ketogenic probably for thousands of years. <laughs> anato- anatomically, modern humans have been here for 200,000 years. Mm. And for 190 of those, we've been on a ketogenic diet. And for 10, we've been, you know, since the invention of agriculture, we've been on a, uh, a, a mixed uh, high carbohydrate yeah. diet. And <laughs> look what it did to us. Yeah. Well, and there's no higher carbohydrate diet than the current standard Western diet. As we all know. Um, Mm. The second one I want to talk about is HDL and triglycerides. As we've been saying over and over again, it's trigs over HDL, the ratio, that really 
is a marker for uh, heart disease and risk factors. It's not mm. LDL. As Dave Feldman has shown with his science, it, it's not LDL. LDL no. is uh, absolutely necessary for life. And when your triglycerides mm-hmm. are high and your HDL is low, watch out. So this study mm-hmm. says plasma triglycerides and HDLC levels predict the development of diabetic kidney disease in subjects with type 2 diabetes. And this is from the AMD Annals Initiative. Yeah. And a ketogenic diet can actually sometimes increase your LDL for some people. And yeah. for some people, it lowers it. And for some yeah. people, it doesn't make a change. Right. Uh, but in most people, triglycerides go down and HDL goes up. Right. And the conclusions of this study, which was an Italian study, in a large population of outpatients with diabetes, low HDLC and high triglyceride levels were independent risk factors for the development of diabetic kidney disease over four years. And that was just accepted September 8th, 2016. Wow. Okay, I'm going to pick a study. This is actually one of my favorite studies. And this one is entitled, A Limit on the Energy Transfer Rate from the Human Fat Store in Hypophagia. And this is from Albert et al. in 2005. What's hypophagia? Hypophagia means eating nothing. Oh. Phagia is eating. So hyperphagia is overeating and hypophagia is not eating. Is that not eating fasting or is that lower calorie restriction or just fasting? Starvation. Starvation. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so this one is actually from Ansel Key's Minnesota starvation experiment. Ah. The interesting thing about this was that they found this data amongst Ansel Key's data for his Minnesota starvation experiment. And these people weren't completely fasting. I think they were having 1,300 calories a day, but it was below their requirements. And so the, the, the point was to put the body under stress. And this was an interesting experiment because there were people who – people went rather nutty. It was actually um, uh, done straight after the Second World War, and the subjects were all conscientious objectors to military service during the war. So they were mostly um, – they were somewhat Amish. There were some um, – uh, the various Christian sects that don't believe in, in, in war. And so these were conscientious objectors, as I said, who uh, volunteered to do this, to do the duty, but they didn't want to go to war. And so they went in this experiment and uh, there were some crazy results. One guy chopped his arm off with an axe Whoa. to try. I know. So, <laughs> you know, that's one way to get out of, <laughs> out of an experiment. Um, so they were, they suffered mental, um, uh, deprivations and and it wasn't really a extremely low calorie diet, but um, anyway, the interesting thing about this review of Ansel Key's data is that we have since then been able to come up with basic functions and values that we can plug into his data to determine mathematically the maximum rate that energy can be drawn from body fat. So this enables us to to tell how much energy you can get out of a pound of body fat. Mm. Uh, and it turns out to be uh, 31.5053 plus or minus 2.72 kilocalories per pound per day is the maximum rate that energy be, can be drawn from body fat. Uh, and this we've actually been able to use to explain why some people can fast and some people can't. And it's all basically about how much body fat they've got. Mm. And this this number is – I like to say that this number is a little bit like um, if you, say, had 10 pounds of body fat, 
And you might think, well, 10 pounds of body fat is roughly 35 kilocalories of energy that you have access to. Mm. And we've taken this number and we've used it to explain why some people can fast and some people can't. And it's all about how much body fat they, they have. Okay. If you have, let's say, you've got uh, 10 pounds of body fat, yeah. uh, you can withdraw from that body fat uh, 31.5 kilocalories per day per pound. Mm. So you can basically withdraw about 300 kilocalories a day, which is not a very good day. Yeah. Um, so somebody who has 10 pounds of body fat, once they've drawn down on all of their circulating lipids, now they only have the energy that is available from their body fat every day. Yeah. And you might think, well, 10 pounds, I've got uh, 35,000 kilocalories, but you can't use them all at once. So it's a right. little bit like an ATM uh, limit on your on your ATM card. Mm. You might have a hundred thousand dollars in your bank account, but you can only withdraw three hundred dollars of that a day. Right. So it's it's similar to that, but it, in fact, it's 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 about one percent of your energy available in body fat that you can withdraw a day. Yeah. So the bottom line here is that you burn body fat slower when you don't have a lot of it, yeah. and uh, if you are relying on your body fat to supplement your energy, this tells you how much you have access to. All right, so this is one of my favorite studies, which is a review of 76 observational and randomized controlled studies that in total covers more than 650,000 participants. And these studies were all trying to show a link between saturated fat intake and risk of heart disease. And essentially, they found those with a high saturated fat intake did not have an increased risk of heart disease. 76 studies, 650,000 people. Okay, now stop telling me I shouldn't eat ribeye fat. Just what? shut up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a good one. So that's very similar to the Minnesota coronary study, and that was uh, that survey was done by Ansel Keys, in fact. Yep. So this study was a randomized double-blind clinical trial of 9,423 women and men aged between 20 and 97, and mm. the intervention was a cholesterol-lowering diet that replaced saturated fat mm. with lineolaic acid, which is from corn oil and corn oil polyunsaturated margarine. And the control diet was high in saturated fats from animal fats, uh, common margarines and shortenings. So you had food that looked identical, and it was these were patients in mental hospitals, and so right. they really couldn't eat anything else. The only thing they could eat was the food that they were given to them by the institution, mm. and they'd spend a lot of effort and a lot of money, to be honest, making sure that this food looked identical so the people who were serving the food didn't know which arm of the trial that they were. Right. And the uh, and so the, the 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 change was. The control arm had a lot of saturated fat and the intervention arm had a lot of polyunsaturated fat, okay. linoleic acid. Mm. And the results were that the intervention group had a significant reduction in serum cholesterol compared with the controls. So the people who were on the polyunsaturated fats, their cholesterol went down, which is what Ansel Keys would have expected, right. uh, compared to the people who had the saturated fat. But the interesting thing was that there was 22% higher risk of death for each 30 milligram drop in reduction in serum cholesterol. <laughs> so, um, you know, the, the, the intervention was not only a failure, it showed the opposite of what they were looking for. So, in other words, when your doctor tells you your cholesterol is too high and you say, show me the science, and they can't show you any science, show them this. 
show them the Minnesota coronary experiment. The interesting thing about this was that uh, it was buried for like 18 years. And when it was finally published, it was published in a, a hardly known journal because it was it was paid for by the National Institutes of Health. It was your, right. your tax dollars at work. So right. they had to publish it somewhere. And um, when Gary Taubes went and asked uh, one of the uh, chief investigators of this, uh, a guy by the name of Franz, uh, when he asked him, why didn't you publish it? And why didn't you publish it earlier? He said, oh, you know, we were embarrassed at it. You know, we were disappointed by the data. It didn't show what we wanted to show. Mm. You know, and ultimately that's really fraud. It is. You know? Yeah. We brought this up with Nina Teicholz. She She told yeah. us about it as well. Yeah. It's it's just unbelievable. So there's more. <laughs> but wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. <laughs> Talking about cholesterol, 138,000 people admitted to U.S. hospitals with a heart attack or a stroke. Cholesterol was measured. Average was 105. 105. Wow. That's considered low. Yeah, that's low. So the average person admitted to a hospital with a heart attack has low cholesterol. Yeah, so in this study, non-correlation equals non-causation, which equals high LDL is not a marker for heart disease. Boom. Boom. You know, I think what is a marker for heart disease is insulin, and there are two right. studies that, that are, are my favorites. Uh, second, probably only to the, the, uh, the energy limits from body fat, uh, the dog study and the rabbit study. Now, the rabbit study came along in 1953. The rabbit study, that's where they gave a bunch of rabbits that aren't made to eat meat a bunch of meat, right? Yeah, it kind of is. Rabbits have actually proved to be a very useful model for watching the development of atherosclerosis. Yeah. Now, they shouldn't eat animal cholesterol, mm -hmm. and when they do, they become atherosclerotic very quickly. Hmm. And we used to think that, well, this obviously proves that eating cholesterol makes us atherosclerotic. Right. But it actually turns out to be not the case. But the usefulness of rabbits is we can basically give them cardiovascular disease very quickly. We just feed them this diet. Right. It happens every time. So hmm. now we've got a model that we know we can always make diabetic. Hmm. <laughs> so now we've got a model that we can always give heart disease. Yeah. Is there anything we can do to that animal to prevent it from having heart disease. And if there is, then that's a potential clue as to the mechanism for the progression of atherosclerosis. Oh, okay. And it turned out if they make these rabbits diabetic so they can't produce any insulin at all, they're protected from atherosclerosis. No kidding. No kidding. Isn't so that amazing? So that means insulin the insulin is, is the problem. Insulin is necessary. If they can't make it, the progression doesn't happen. Wow. So that's the first thing. Insulin is necessary. So the second question is, is insulin sufficient? And this was the next experiment that was done in 1960, and this is with dogs. And basically what they did with these dogs was they knocked out their ability to produce insulin with the, it's actually the same uh, chemical that they used on the rabbits, mm. alloxin. It's a, like a fake uh, glucose and just 
sends the pancreas crazy and it it uh, makes mm. them di- type 1 diabetic very quickly. Wow. Um, so they took 21 of these dogs. Three of them were controls. 19 of these dogs were given diabetes by a single injection of this alloxin to okay. knock out their beta cells. Um, and then their fasting glucose w- was established and they were subsequently injected with from 1 to 3 IU of insulin per kilogram depending on their fasting glucose. Okay. So basically what they were doing was making these dogs diabetic so they can't make any insulin and then giving them the insulin that they need to get their glucose at the right level. So they could, they were artificial pancreasing. <laughs> kind of. They, exactly, yeah. yeah. It was finer tuning than you would with, uh, with a human because right. they were obviously in a lab setting. But what was interesting about this was they gave these dogs their insulin in just one leg. Ah, right. So the insulin went into an artery, into the femoral artery of just one leg of these dogs, which basically that insulin went down to the periphery and then back through the the venous return and then through the rest of the the, uh, artery to get to the rest of the body. So what it meant was that insulin was concentrated in one leg. And Mm. guess what? The dogs got cardiovascular disease in one leg. The leg with the insulin. <laughs> the, the leg with the insulin. So insulin is sufficient to be able to cause uh, atherosclerosis. Wow. So being able to show that it's necessary and sufficient shows us why type 2 diabetics have a higher rate of uh, cardiovascular disease. Right, because their insulin is we high. more insulin. Yeah. We do. Yeah. So those two studies together basically tell us that LDL cholesterol, which has been the target of of activity for getting rid of uh, cardiovascular disease may not be the, the, the culprit that we want. Yeah. This study that I'm going to bring up now um, produced some very dramatic change in people that I am certainly close to that uh, are in the medical industry and, mm-hmm. um, and, and who were very surprised by this. And it actually sent a shock wave through a particular hospital. So this is from the European Journal of Clinical Nutrition. And essentially, here's the abstract of this study. Very low-carbohydrate diets or ketogenic diets have been in use since the 1920s as a therapy for epilepsy and can, in some cases, completely remove the need for medication. And we've seen that in ourselves and our friends. We have. From the 1960s onwards, they have become widely known as one of the most common methods for obesity treatment. Recent work over the last decade or so has provided evidence of the therapeutic potential of ketogenic diets in many pathological conditions, such as diabetes, polycystic ovary syndrome, acne, neurological diseases, cancer, and the amelioration of respiratory and cardiovascular disease risk factors. The possibility that modifying food intake can be useful for reducing or eliminating pharmaceutical methods of treatment, which are often lifelong with significant side effects, calls for serious investigation. This review revisits the meaning of physiological ketosis in the light of this evidence, and considers possible mechanisms for the therapeutic actions of the ketogenic diet on different diseases. The present review also questions whether there are still some preconceived ideas about ketogenic diets, which may be presenting unnecessary barriers to their use as therapeutic tools in the physician's hand. Yeah. That was actually Jeff Volek, wasn't it? He was one of the principal investigators on that. I think that was in 2013, right? Yep, that's right. Yeah, another paper that came out 
from Jeff Volek was actually uh, came out just this year, and it it, it was um, the senior the senior investigator was Dr. Finney, Stephen Finney, mm-hmm. uh, included Jeff Volek and Sarah Hulberg, and this is the Virtus study that uh, basically that the, the title of this is a novel intervention including individualized nutritional recommendations reduces hemoglobin A one C levels, medication use, and weight in type two diabetes. Okay, and this is actually the first stage of this uh, study and it is for 10 weeks and there is a follow-up a two-year follow-up of this study due out uh, in about uh, a year and a half's time which will be fascinating that is just going to blow the lid off the type 2 diabetes um, uh, industry so what this study shows is after 10 weeks of a ketogenic diet and they the interesting thing about this was that they used, they wrote an iPhone app and this app actually takes people through the ketogenic diet, gets them to plug in what they're eating, what their uh, ketone measurements are mm-hmm. and gives them personalized advice. And so yeah. uh, this is really – it was a, it's a Silicon Valley company that's actually done this. And so if you've seen a lot of um, press recently about uh, Silicon Valley types getting in on the ketogenic diet mm. – this is the study that uh, is behind it all. And what they show is that in 10 weeks over the, the duration of this study, and as I said, this study is going to go for a full two years, but yeah. this preliminary data is after 10 weeks. So this study was able to take people who had a baseline HbA1c of 7.6. That was me. That was you. Yeah. And this is a fully qualified type 2 diabetic. Yeah. And they were able to show after 10 weeks they were able to get uh, 56.8% of these individuals were able to reduce one or more of their diabetic medications uh, or completely eliminated. Which I also did. Right. And 47.7% of participants achieved an HbA1c of less than 6.5. Also did that. Which yeah. is non-diabetic. So they they were able to take... Uh, a group of type 2 diabetics and reverse the diabetes of 47.7 of them after 10 weeks. That's awesome. That's fantastic. And some of those that were able to get below 6.5 were taking metformin, uh, which is a common diabetes medication, but mm-hmm. only metformin. Mm-hmm. And uh, 39 of them had no diabetes medication at all. And the original study started off with 262 participants. Mm. So... Um, that's remarkable. That so remarkable. after two years, two years is going to be interesting because that, that is going to show that people have not only been able to become non-diabetic, be able to stay non-diabetic. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. No, we're not doing recipes today because we wanted to devote the entire show or most of the show to the science that we yeah. found. I have got a recipe for next week, so Me too. Um, you'll have to wait for that, yeah. But uh, what we wanted to do was we wanted to get some of the science that we found interesting uh, and talk about it, so uh, hoping that you, that, you, that you appreciated that and that you can share it with your friends and loved ones and colleagues. And hopefully some of this will be useful uh, as you become evangelists for the ketogenic diet. And of course, all of the notes on the website are there, all the show notes and all the links. But if you'd just yeah. like to share a blog post with somebody who says, show me the science, it's science.2keto.com. Yeah. 
So, of course, if you have anything that you want to tell us, something we've said wrong, something you don't agree with, some more research that you found to support or refute anything that we've said, send it by email to dudes at twoketodudes.com or post it on our website. And while you're at it, register for KetoFest at ketofest.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at 2KetoDudes, on Instagram at 2KetoDudes. Make sure to use the hashtag 2KetoDudes. That's two with the number two. And of course, if you want to join our forum, it's forum.2keto.com. And if useless swag is your fancy, you know, t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other junk with witty keto sayings on them, head over to gear.2keto.com. And join the 2KetoDudes fan club. You'll be eligible to win something in every show. Right now, we're giving away mugs. Go to fanclub.2keto.com to sign up. And if you feel like supporting our podcast and our forums, hit the donate button on our website at www.2ketodudes.com or just go to donate.2keto.com. You can also see our podcast and other videos on YouTube at youtube.2keto.com. And if you haven't already, go leave us a review on iTunes. Yes, absolutely. Well, keep calm and keto on, Richard. Yeah, keep calm and keto on, Carl. All right, we'll see you next time on Two Keto Dudes. Dudes.